Well, I uh, hope you all are doing well, and uh, if you're in Stratford, then you probably are just wrapping up your spring break. We obviously have several of our church families still out and about and traveling, and uh, or maybe recuperating from traveling back yesterday, I don't know. But uh, this morning we're going to be wrapping up a sequence that we've been in in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. If you want to begin making your way there, we're going to begin in verse 35 here in a moment. And it's a sequence concerning the ministry of Jesus in the city of Capernaum, which was in the region of Galilee. It started on the Sabbath uh, when Jesus was teaching and casting out demons within the synagogue, which amazed the people. Then it led to Peter's house where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law and he began uh, casting out demons again and healing others, which led the people to be even more amazed. Uh, It was a busy Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath, as a point of reference for us, is a Saturday on our calendar, but the Jewish calendar is known as the Sabbath day. And Jesus was busy with all the needs of the people in Capernaum. And there was still a lot to be busy with, as our text is going to imply today. We'll see here in a moment. But it leads us to a question I'd like us to begin as we begin focusing on what we're going to have to walk through this morning. Is what do we busy ourselves with? What sort of things do you busy yourself with? Work? School? Did I hear dance class? What? Kids. Oh, I thought I heard, I heard dance class. Like, wow. Come on up. <laughs> let's, let's see all that busy work. Kids, yeah. Church? <laughs> It's true. That's, that's like my week. Housework. Books. Did I hear books? Laundry. Mike's that dirty, huh? <laughs> just, he just rolls around in the mud all day. and then We have sports and to-do lists, chores, busy ourselves with social media, bills, worries, entertainment, gossip. Eating, driving kids from place to place, being a family taxi service. You know, the thing about being busy, um, I began seeing this more and more when I was in youth ministry and how it began to ex- explode. I began in youth ministry, and um, I, I remember the first time I was just in shock when I would have students tell me they couldn't come to Sunday night youth gathering because their coach or whatever sport was going to have an open gym or a practice or something and would tell them, if they expected to play, they better be there. And so they would say, well, I can't come because I want to play, and so i got to go to this thing my coach is requiring. I remember on Wednesday nights where we would have kids that wouldn't come to our Wednesday night youth gatherings because the practices went so long that they had to go home and eat and clean up and then do all their schoolwork, and they would tell me, I just can't get everything done and still make it to youth, so something has got to give. I was shocked when... The first student asked me or invited me to come watch them play a game. And when I asked them, when was this game going to happen? They would tell me on Wednesday night. See, I'm dating myself here, but I remember when I grew up, Sundays were untouchable. Um, There was nothing planned on Sundays for for church. The first time I was ever disappointed with sports was when I wanted to play football as an elementary kid. And they were had practices at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sundays, and the games would be around the same time when the games start happening. And my dad told me flat out, you cannot play football right now um, because Sundays are church days, and we don't do anything else uh, but focus on going to church and what God has for us to do 
Wednesdays, when I was growing up, was a day that coaches would be intentional about being done at a certain amount at a certain time so that the kids could go home and do what they need to do and still make it to church that night. And, and I'm not condemning practicing on Sundays. I mean, my daughter, Abby, played basketball this last year, and she had practice a couple times on Sunday. But the only thing that interrupted was our nap time, right? I mean, that was, that was about it. It was, it was a good time that they had it planned, and she could still go to church and still be ready for whatever she has or Jamie and I had later that day. The idea of being busy came into full view this last year. Um, Charlie Buchanan, one of our elders here, and I were coaching sixth grade football. And I was just, I was frustrated at times because we would have kids on our football team that were involved in three sports at the exact same time. And so they wouldn't show up to practice because they had a basketball game, or they would show up to practice late because they had a baseball game, or they would have to decide on Saturday whether or not they were going to play for our team for football or they were going to play for their team for baseball and and so we had to wonder are we even going to have enough players because we only had like 13 so you had to have like everybody there so you have a team to put on the field um, but it just amazed me how busy we've allowed ourselves to become and I'm not I'm not opposed to being involved in multiple sports I was growing up but my question when I think about it is when does it become overkill when do we make ourselves so busy that we actually stress ourselves out and wear ourselves down that we don't enjoy any of it? And we're so busy with filling our schedules and filling our times that we just zip in through life and, and it just goes by so fast and we think we're enjoying it, but we just feel worn out. Our focus this morning is being busy in the right things. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, like I said, in beginning in verse 35 here in a moment. And as I was preparing for this week, I came across this illustration. It said unknown author, but to me, it reminded me a lot of C.S. Lewis' Screwtape Letters. If you're looking for a book to pick up, I'd recommend that one. Um, but this is what this author wrote. He said, Satan called a worldwide convention in his opening address to his evil angels, which would be the demons. He says, we can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from conservative values. But we can do something else. We can keep them from forming an intimate, abiding experience in Christ. If they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church. Let them have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time so they can't gain that experience in Jesus Christ. And here's how I want you to do it. Distract them from gaining any hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout the day. And one of the demons shouted out and questioned, How shall we do this? Keep them busy. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent numerous schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spin, 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 and then borrow, borrow, borrow. Convince the wives to go to work and the husbands to work six to seven days a week, 12 hours a day, so they can afford their lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so they cannot hear that still, small voice. Entice them to play the radio or cassette player whenever they drive, to keep the TV, the VCR, their CDs constantly in their homes, constantly going. And see to it that every store and restaurant in the world plays music constantly. 
This will jam their minds and break that union with Christ, fill their coffee tables with magazines and newspapers, pound their minds with the news 24 hours a day, and invade their driving moments with billboards, flood their mailboxes with junk mail, sweepstakes, mail-order catalogs, and every kind of newsletter, and promotional offering free products, services, and false hopes. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from exhausted, disquieted, unprepared for the coming week, Don't let them go out in nature. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, concerts, and movies instead. And when they meet for their spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that when they leave, they'll leave with troubled consciences and unsettled emotions. Let them be involved in soul winning, but crowd their lives with so many good causes they have no time to seek power from Christ. Soon they will be working in their own strength, sacrificing their own health, and sacrificing their family unity, all for a good cause. Well, in the end, it was quite a convention. The demons went eagerly to their assignments, causing the Christians everywhere to get busy, 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 and to rush here and there. The question is, has the devil been successful in his scheme? This world can be so busy, we can actually miss out on living. But what if we could be busy in the right things? Jesus was a busy guy. You can't read through the Gospels and not say that is one guy who was busy. He had demands on him for his time. He had demands on him for his energy. And after what happened on the Sabbath at Capernaum, those demands were beginning to amplify. Our text this morning is not about denying busyness or the busyness of life. Rather, it's a calling us to focus on the busy things which will actually bring us joy and won't wear out our soul, mind, and heart. Begin in chapter 1 and verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Father, I pray that you still our souls and our minds and our hearts. I have no idea what everyone is going through in this place, but Lord, I praise you that you do. You know the things that are overwhelming us. You know the loads that some of us are carrying, the worries we have. Father, we can busy our minds with so many things. And Lord, I pray this morning as we walk through your word that you point us in the right direction. You promised us to have life and have it abundantly and joy that was complete and full. That's why I pray that that is what happens this morning as we tune our hearts to you and to busy ourselves with the things that are actually beneficial for us. We thank for all the blessings you give us, all the opportunities you give us with our kids and our family and our work and, and all the things we can go out and do and get away. But Father, you have a much bigger plan for us. So walk us through your word. Move me out of the way. I ask that your will and kingdom alone be done in this time. Forgive us where we have failed you and pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus had a busy Sabbath in Capernaum. He, He comes in, if you look back into verse 21, 
Jesus comes into Capernaum and he heads straight to the synagogue where he begins teaching and it amazes the people. And then he begins healing and it amazes the people even more. And then he has an exorcism, which I don't know if exorcism with ING is exercising um, because it's similar because you're casting out the bad stuff and the evil stuff of your life. But Jesus is exercising, exorcismizing. I don't know what, what the word would be. But he's amazing the people. He's casting out demons. And Sabbath in Capernaum was a good, busy day. It would be a day where we would look at Sunday and say, look, it is warranted on Sunday that we sleep in and we did some rest. But yet, what does Jesus do the very next day in verse, 20, in verse 35? Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And this is something that we should busy our lives with. To be busy with prayer. The Gospel of Mark only contains three times recorded where Jesus breaks away to pray in an isolated area, in a deserted area. This particular one is the very first time Mark mentions. He does it again after the feeding of the 5,000. does it one more time in the Gospel of Mark in the Garden of Gethsemane. Each time Jesus breaks away from the busy, breaks away from the commotion, and begins to busy himself in the Father's presence. Now the Gospel of Luke records Jesus doing this more often. And Mark's language in verse 35 is to imply that this was a regular practice of Jesus in breaking away to get into prayer. The phrase, there he prayed in verse 35, is a Greek imperfect tense. It means that this wasn't a quick prayer, but a prolonged prayer time that Jesus had before the hustle and bustle of the day would begin. You may remember Southwest Airlines had that little tag at the end of their commercials, you want to get away? Well, the answer to that is that we need to get away. Our soul desperately needs to unplug from this world and to busy ourselves in the presence of the Father. We're not talking about vacation. We're talking about communing with God. E. Stanley once described prayer as a time exposed to God. Arkent Hughes writes, Jesus is the eternal God incarnate, the creator of all who holds everything together by His power, yet He still lived by and in prayer. And this is the implication. If Jesus did this, and He was God in the flesh, He was perfect without sin, then we who continuously wrestle with sin are in desperate need to be busy in a time of prayer. Prayer shows our dependence upon God. This world is calling us to be dependent on all sorts of things, to busy our minds and hearts with all sorts of things, to, to crowd our schedules, to tell us to prioritize this and to tempt us to do this because it has to be done. Life can be crazy. Jesus, day before, was crazy. And Jesus shows us the example to break away from the crazy, to break away from the things to do and to seek the time to be alone with the Father through prayer. The text knows it, lets us know that Jesus snuck out while the house was still asleep. It says that it was still early in the morning. It was still dark. Being still dark, most likely the town was still asleep. And he went to this desolate place. The word desolate is the same word used for wilderness. Where John the Baptist preached in the wilderness. Where Jesus went to be tempted in the wilderness. It means a deserted, solitary, isolated place. 
And Mark isn't concerned as where exactly this place was, but it teaches us we need to find a prayer space. I've heard people say that you should wake up early and you should read your Bible early in the morning before you take on the day. And for a morning person, who are my morning people? That's great advice. We don't mind waking up early. Matter of fact, we can't help but waking up early. It just happens. We don't even need an alarm. I typically, when school is in session, will wake up before the kids need to be woken up. We'll wake up before Jamie needs to get moving around and I'll grab our little dachshund our youngest one i'll take her downstairs and i'll let her out i'll give her food and then i'll get my bible and a pen and notebook and i'll go sit on the couch on her table wait for her to get done and i will spend time with god in prayer it's quiet it's dark it's a desolate place in our house no one is stirring now sometimes abby will come down like she did this morning a little earlier than normal but for the most part i'm just isolated with the father I always find a place to do this in our homes. And when I was in student ministry, I would make a, a habit of doing it as we travel. And if you've ever been a part of student ministry, Jason can attest, if you're going for, for a, a long trip and you have to stay overnight in a hotel or on the way back in a hotel, as a, the male youth pastor, I was always in a room with other guys. And that's always a joy in itself. But I always make a habit when everyone was starting to settle down to ask the room, does anybody need to go to the bathroom? And when they all told me no or where he went, then, then I would sneak away into that isolated place. I'd close the bathroom door with my Bible, with my pen in hand and my notebook. Now sometimes I learn you, you want to make sure who was in the bathroom last before you go in there and close that door. But I made an effort to be in a solitary place with my father, to be with him and him alone. Sometimes this would be morning hours, and sometimes it would be evening hours that I would do it at home. We've had homes where we've had basements, and we have had spare rooms, and there's been times in our life where doing it in the morning doesn't work because the kids are waking up and they need it changed because they couldn't do it at that point in time. They're too young. And there's times it had to be done in the evening after you put them down to bed and everything had quieted down for the night. But the point is to get away, to spend time with God, and I think if we say you have to do this in the morning, you have to start your day in prayer in the morning. And, and, and you can, some of y'all, since you're night owls, your prayer in the morning is, oh God, here we go, right? But to find that place where you can break away, and if we say it has to be done here, it has to be done there, then we're putting a, a standard on it that the Bible does not put. The Bible says that we should pray and that we should be in the presence of the Father. We should be in His Word. We should do it. And so for you night owls, your best time of isolation and getting to a solitary place is after everyone's gone to bed and your brain is still going 100 miles an hour. And to find that time where you're going to get with God, you've got to turn off the TV. You have to isolate yourself. Maybe for you it's to go to your car at lunch. Get in your car and just have your Bible there and have that isolated space while you're at work in your car. Maybe you have a park you can drive to. Maybe it's simply just walking around the parking lot by yourself, talking with God and listening to Him. The point is we have to get busy with prayer. We have to isolate ourselves because if we do not make, be intentional about this, the world will take our time and make us busy on things that are not beneficial for our heart and soul. To be busy in the presence of the Father. In our text, eventually everyone begins to wake up. And someone notices Jesus isn't in the house anymore. 
And so this causes an alarm for Peter and the others. It probably began to intensify as people began bringing people to Peter's house to find healing or have demons cast out. They came searching for the miracle worker and the miracle worker was missing. This had to be the one thing that Peter and the others feared the most. Can you imagine that conversation? Where'd Jesus go? Can you imagine the panic they would have in that moment? I mean, Peter, when he finds Jesus, he simply says, everyone is looking for you. What's interesting about this text is Mark doesn't refer to Simon or those with him as disciples in this moment. Mark doesn't refer to them as disciples until chapter 2. And it's probably not given here, not as an oversight, but because Simon and the others aren't acting like disciples. They're acting like the people of Capernaum who wanted the miracle worker to do their bidding. The word searched in verse 36 carries the meaning of hunting. In Luke's telling of this same event, it's the people who are on the hunt, and Luke doesn't even mention Simon by name. The idea is Simon is acting like everyone else in Capernaum. There was momentum in the city. They were on the verge of something great. They had become celebrities overnight, and now Jesus has the nerve to disappear. Simon and the others are in search of Jesus because they are assuming what He should do. They come before Him, not in reverence, but in demand for Him to return and restart the miracle working. They don't question what Jesus is doing. They don't question why Jesus is doing. Instead, they deliver their demand. Everyone is looking for you. The Greek word looking for occurs several times in Mark's Gospel. And every time it carries a negative connotation. Simon and the crowd came seeking after Jesus in order to control and determine what he should do. And Jesus isn't having anything to do with their demands or their expectations. He simply looks at them and says, hey, let's move on. We see Jesus do this numerous times in Scripture. And I believe he's doing it here as he does it then to protect his followers. He does it after the feeding of the 5,000 when he recognizes that this crowd is ready to take him by force to make him king. He excuses his disciples. He does it in the upper room as he excuses Judas. He does it in the garden as he's being prepared to be arrested and he puts the disciples in certain categories, in certain places. Jesus frequently taught this lesson about being busy. Be busy in separation. And moving to the other areas of Galilee, Jesus was pulling His new followers from the excitement of Jesus being a miracle worker into the understanding of Jesus being their Savior. The world came storming in on Peter's house the day after the Sabbath. They came with all their demands. They came with all their requests. They came with all their needs and their worries and their wants. And what does Jesus do? He leaves early so Peter and the others have to leave the house, have to leave all that commotion, have to leave all that busyness to go find Jesus and see what He is about. Jesus is already beginning to teach His new followers about separating from the wants of the people and uniting with the needs of the kingdom. And prayer is a great stepping stone in us separating from the Word. The other way is to immerse yourself into the Word of God. And from the Old Testament through the New Testament, we see God's desire is that His people live differently. They live separated from this world. world. The word 
for separation that the Bible uses is known as sanctification. It means to be set apart. The IVP dictionary defines sanctification as an active process which leads to the state of holiness, which is the goal of Christian living. The Bible captures this in Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, we see this idea of sanctification in 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And the word Gentiles in 1 Peter refers to unbelievers. Keep it among the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In the Old Testament, God set the sanctification process up for His people through covenants, through the law, through His redeeming acts, through the blessings, through the temple and the sacrificial system. These were all tools that God set up that people would look upon His people and know that they are different, set apart from this world. In Romans, we're told to live a life sanctified and separated so we might become slaves of righteousness. In 1 Thessalonians, we're told the will of God is our sanctification. Again, in Romans, we're told that sanctification and our freedom in Christ leads to bearing a fruit of being sanctified. God saved us not just from our sins, not just from His eternal judgment, but that we would live a life separated from this world, that we would be different. And in our separation from the world, we reveal that God is God and we are His. But coming to our text, can you imagine Peter's response? And the others, when Jesus said, hey guys, let's move on. This definitely wasn't what they came searching for. This definitely wasn't what they were expecting of Jesus. They had an agenda to get Jesus back to town, getting back to Peter's house, and to continue the work that began the day before. See, they had yet to grasp Jesus' playbook and His mission. I'm sure we all would have done the same thing. I mean, can you imagine if we were there on the Sabbath seeing all these healings and these demons casted out? There's no doubt they wanted to go back and experience that again. Yet Jesus is teaching this, them and us another thing about being busy with. Be busy with purpose. So Jesus was going to continue to heal. He was going to continue to cast out demons throughout Galilee. We're told that in verse 39. Jesus revealed the purpose He was there was to preach the gospel. Look in verse 38. Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. I wonder if Jesus was a little discouraged after what happened the Sabbath before. When he came to the synagogue, he taught, and the people were amazed. He cast out demons, and people were amazed. He healed, and people were amazed. But there's never a mention of a fruit of salvation. There's never a mention that they were turning to him as the Messiah, as the people in Samaria did after the woman at the well encountered him. I wonder if he was a little discouraged by their desire to not want a Savior, but to want more miracles more extraordinary things. And Jesus tells His disciples who come to Him, look guys, I came to preach. 
This was his purpose. The phrase came out in verse 38, could hold a couple different meanings. Meaning he came out of Capernaum because he knew what the people there wanted from him, and that was not his purpose. Or it could mean that he came out of heaven and came to earth for the purpose of preaching the gospel. Either way, Jesus' purpose was to preach the gospel. And if this is Jesus' purpose, then it must become our purpose to preach the gospel. The word gospel means good news. In Jesus' day, it called for a herald to come into a particular area, and he would proclaim the coming of a big government official, a dignitary, and he would call everyone to prepare the way. Then when this person comes, you must be ready for their arrival. And this is what we are purposed to do as God's children, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and His coming arrival, to prepare all people to be ready when He returns. That's what it means to proclaim the gospel. We're simply stating, He's coming, are you ready? When it comes to sharing good news, I've come across many devout believers who have a strong relationship with God. You know what one thing they struggle with? Sharing the gospel. We have this fear in our heart about how will people respond? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't say it right? There are so many classes and books you can take about studying on how to share the gospel. Here's a simple method. The easiest way to begin sharing the gospel is to make the good news of Jesus a regular part of your conversation. When you talk about sports, when you talk about the weather, or when you talk about food, bring Jesus into the conversation. If you talk about the weather, talk about the one who knows what the weather's going to actually do and who controls the weather. If you talk about how your team had the biggest victory ever, talk about the one who had the ultimate victory. Point the conversation to Jesus. But for sake of time this morning, I want to busy ourselves with a couple methods on how to share the gospel. The first one we may be very familiar with, and we've talked about these before. If you grew up in, in a Southern Baptist church and you went to Lifeways VBS at least once or twice in your life, then you've heard this rendition through song and through teaching. It's very simple. It's the ABCs of the gospel. Admit Believe, confess. What do we admit? We're sinners. What do we believe? Jesus died for our sins, rose again. So what are we confessing? Our belief in Him, that He is our Lord and our Savior. Admit, believe, confess. Now if you want, you can throw Scripture on there. I would recommend doing it because there's power in the Word of God. But if that's where you got, then just start there. Take the conversation to Jesus and then bring out the ABCs. Hey, have have you admitted you're a sinner? Do you believe Jesus died for you and rose again? Have you confessed Him as your Lord and Savior? Get the conversation to real purpose. Busy that conversation with real purpose that makes change. I talk about the weather. I talk about food. I post about food. I talk about working out. I talk about things I should, should eat and shouldn't eat. And sometimes I post about those things. To busy ourselves with what matters. That will make a difference. Another one I came across when I was in youth ministry is from Dare to Share Ministries. I, I didn't come up with this. It's the gospel. And I try to put space here so you could see the word gospel. Another acronym. So God created us for a relationship with Him. 
there's an easy way to enter in that because people talk about relationships all the time. Do you know you were created for a relationship more than your marriage or more than with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your neighbors, your coworkers? God created you for a relationship with Him. Oh, our sins separate us from God. So we have sin. We do things we don't, we shouldn't do. And we know we shouldn't do them. We're not proud of them. And so what do we try to do? We try to do good things, but sin cannot be removed by good deeds. You can't do enough holy, righteous things to remove your sin problem. But paying the price for your sin, Jesus Christ died and rose again. And everyone who believes in Him has eternal life, and life eternal begins today. Just a simple method. I mean, we talk about the gospel all the time at church, the good news. So just make it into an acronym and then put it in a conversation. I'm not telling you to whip out a card or a track and have nothing against tracks. I'm not telling you to recite a script to someone. But the more we talk about Jesus in our conversation, the easier it is to point the conversation to eternal matters. Things with purpose. I think some reason believers don't talk about Jesus that much with other people and sharing the gospel with them is because we don't make it a part of our normal conversation. We're not pointing every blessing we have in life to Him. Hey, we got a relief stimulus bill package. That's God's doing, not Biden's. Point to Him. He's the one that blessed you with that. There's one other method that I've come across, and it's with grace. If any of these sound familiar, here's the thing. I use one of these three methods every Sunday we meet. Every single Sunday we meet. And I may not do it verbatim how it goes, but I make it into a conversation where we can just talk about it. So grace is this. God, rebellion, atonement, confession, eternal life. And these words are just reminders. Okay? They're cues. Let's see how this works. What do we know about God? He loves us. He sent His Son to die for us. He wants to have, hey, I was on the last slide. He wants to have a relationship with Him. He's the truth. He's the Almighty. He's the Creator of all things. I don't care who you engage in a conversation with. Everyone understands there's something more powerful than themselves. They can be an atheist or an agnostic, but they understand there's something more powerful than themselves. You cannot look into the skies and see the sun or the moon or the vast universe and understand there's something bigger than me. We as believers believe it's God who created all those things, who knows all those things, who has the power to hold all those things together. And he creates for relationships. The problem is rebellion. We all have a rebellious heart. Admit it. There was a time in your life your parents told you to do something and you did the exact opposite. Right? There's a time you did something you hoped nobody else saw because you knew you shouldn't have done it, but you got away with it. That's rebellion. We all have a rebellious heart. The Bible defines it as sin. It's falling short of God's holy standard. And so what can fix our rebellious heart? Atonement. And that's a word I know we don't throw out outside of church walls. 
The Bible says Jesus was the atoning sacrifice. The word atonement means to replace or to substitute. So because we are rebellious and we're rebellious to God, God sent His Son to be a substitute in our place to take our punishment. And when we understand that is truth and we confess Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice, we're given eternal life. Where are you this morning? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? I'm not, I'm not saying have you accepted these methods. These are just tools, okay? Just methods. You may make a hybrid of grace and gospel and ABC because you forget which order it's supposed to go in. Though if you forget ABC, then that's probably ABC, but are you here this morning? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the promise and the love of God for you? Have you begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? Have you been forgiven for all of your sins and been promised eternal life? I don't want you to leave here wondering, I think I did that. I want you to leave here knowing that this, in fact, was the day of your salvation and the deal is set, sealed, and nothing can separate you from Him. Have you done that? I'm going to invite Nick and Bridget to come up. We're going to sing a song about this grace. It's called Amazing Grace. And if you're here and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come down to accept God's amazing grace. It's not by anything you've done, but by everything Jesus Christ has already done for you. Maybe you're here and you've just allowed yourself to get so busy, so distracted, you just feel worn out. And God's just calling you back, hey, I know you're going to be busy. I created you for, to work. But let's get busy with the right things so instead of tearing yourself down, you're actually being built up. This is our time of invitation. They're going to lead us in a song, and I'm going to invite you to come. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have empowered and, and enabled us to carry out this mission of being busy with purpose. Lord, help us to be busy with prayer this week, to be busy in your presence, to be busy with the work that you're doing in our lives about separating us from this world. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your good news. And Lord, if someone's here this morning and they are unsure whether they're saved, let your spirit grab a hold of their hearts and bring them down the aisle. And some of my brothers and sisters in Christ are just worn out Lord, let us just come before you and be still. Revive us again. Awaken our hearts. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.